0: You're listening to Shack. My name is Ross Butler, and I'm talking today with Jim Strang, head of EMEA at Hamilton Lane. Jim's a well-known and respected industry figure, and it's great to have him here. He sits on the firm's global investment committees and has a particular focus on European private market fund investment. This gives him a really privileged and holistic view of the private equity world. Jim, thanks for coming. It's great to have you.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for organising the weather. It's a bit warm for the Scottish people out there, but anyway. Yeah,
0: I'm sorry about that. London, late July, mid-30s, AC has just been turned off.
1: <laughs> no problem. Glad uh, to be here.
0: Let's take this from the from the top. Um, we are many years, you could say, into a alternative assets fundraising boom. Yep. Some might say well, it's long in the tooth. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the drivers of... Investor appetite and how resilient would you say the demand is?
1: Uh, well, I think it's pretty resilient. I think you know some of the things that that go through our mind or my mind is if you th- our our asset class, everything everywhere, is smaller than BlackRock. So actually, we're like a five trillion dollar asset class and about a relative to about a two hundred trillion dollar public bond and equity market. So. You know it feels like a lot because it's grown a lot but it's it, on a relative basis it's actually still relatively small
0: right so you paint a pretty rosy picture in terms of the the quantum the quant you know the quantitative side um would you say it's fair that there is a consensus that um private equity returns over the medium term are only going in one direction though and that's not up
1: um, it depends right i think there's a few things to that i mean i think that the high level sense of it is that there's more competition and there's higher prices. Because if you think about the way, there's only really three ways to make money in a private equity deal. One is you you take a business that makes 100 million pounds of profit and turn it into one that makes 200 million, which, which sounds easy, but isn't. The second is that you buy something for seven or eight times its cash flow and sell it for 10 or 11, which again, sounds easy, but is, isn't and is increasingly less likely to happen. And the third is that you you have an equitization of the debt structure. So you put you effectively take out the debt in a deal, and you equitize the enterprise value, and you make money that way. Uh, and that again sort of used to be true, but not so much. So I think what you've been left with, and uh, you know, where you where you're going, is there's a huge focus on number one because that that lever that that I'm going to transform this from X to Y lever is actually the one that most firms have got left to play with. So you know, in the sense that. Um, levers two and three are becoming way less relevant um then there's more focus on one which basically means if you want to make the same aggregate and you're you know t- like you're not flying on three engines anymore you're flying on one then the one engine that you're flying on better be a really good engine because it's going to have to keep the whole plane in the air now it's not that it can't but it, it just changes the sort of the the pattern of outcomes a bit. i think so you know what, what and what we see is that really good private equity still seems really resilient to the returns that it used to be able to make but there's kind of less of it. So I suppose that what that probably means is that the median might come under pressure. And that that I would agree with. And I think the other thing as well that you have to be wary, wary of is this is kind of a business that's all about time. So, you know, the, one of the challenges is it's not, it's not that the fund or the deal returns might come under so much pressure, it's just that it might take a lot longer to get there. So, you know, the sort of classic I want to get um two and a half x on my deal well you might but you might have done that in in in, a, in halcyon days you might have done that in two years because you could have created it through a multiple arbitrage uh, in today's world you're probably looking at five and and if there's any sort of speed bump that we hit cycle wise then if five is going to go to eight so actually that you know the, you might make the same capital multiple but you're going to have your capital tied up for longer and your IRR is just a mathematical result going to come down so i think you know it's a pretty complicated nuanced question but um You know, I still still sort of, you know, card carrying believer that this done really, really well is like nothing else. Um, But it is going to get harder to, to be able to maintain that because of that dynamic that's out there.
0: So given that, how should LPs, institutions investing in to private equity think about the relative value that private equity offers? What kind of benchmarks are fair?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, most people that we talk to think about it as a sort of a premium over the public market. Um, and that premium sort of tends to range between three and 500 basis points over the public market. Um, and most of our investors tend to look at it through that line. So it's rather, a few have got a sort of an absolute must be X target, it's more of a case of what we think, you know, we have a sense of what we think public markets are going to do. And this is going to have to hit a certain premium over that to make it justify itself. So there's a certain element of that of that in it and the sort of relativity pieces is, is pretty important for uh, you know, but say many if not all the people that we talk to.
0: So if you're flying on one engine, and you're looking at a fund and you're looking at that engine, presumably you're looking at that engine really closely. Yeah, what What are you looking for? Is there like a is there a consensus growing with regards to the a value creation playbook that seems to work? Or is it very idiosyncratic still?
1: Uh, well, I've got a massive bias on this, so I've got like Jim's version of what it should look like, and it's only one version. But and this comes back to the sort of inner Scottish accountant control freak turned to management consultant that, that that I am. So, you know the and the, the way the way that I t- tend to look at these things, and I think you see some of this in the industry is um, what's happened is the general partners have got much more focused in what they look at. So they they've gone from being more i'd say much more thematic um, as opposed to just purely deal driven so they're generally i think much more thoughtful about where they want to play and and they want to play in areas where they feel like the they understand the secular drivers of what's going to define success in a certain little subsector be that what it may like um lab testing or um you know sas software is another one which is out there <clears throat> and what they do is they say okay let's look at this area and see why it makes sense for us. So, you know, what what's driving it? So are there sort of fundamental drivers of demand which are strong and, and have a real resiliency for whatever reason? So it's a, if it's a business critical need or it's a, you know, it's something to do with a demographic which is going in one direction only, then these things are all helpful because um, it gives some sort of resiliency underlying. And then they, I think they like to, they like to understand the sort of industry dynamics. So what's the fragmentation of the industry? Because again, we'll come back to why that's important. And then also, Um, how is it defined so is it mean like bricks if you buy a brick company bricks are like the most local business in the world because bricks don't cost much and don't travel very far so that's a local business software is a global business because it travels infinitely at the click of a button so that the kind of business definitions frames the size of the price to some extent and and that also weaves into the strategy so you know i think what you see them doing the good gps doing and certainly the ones that i seem to sort of have a bias towards are they're pretty good at articulating what these different things look like and it, it gives them a sort of great reference point to begin the journey because you know that the what flying on one engine is probably a slightly unfortunate <laughs> analogy but that that ability to sort of do the business transformation is, is i think pretty important and and they do need to understand that like the point of departure is the is a consulting ease version of what that means it's like the starting point um, but then fundamentally you've got to know the point of arrival which is where you're going to get to um, and that means, you, you know, not you have to have a sort of fundamental understanding of where you're beginning, but you've got to have a really good sense of how you're going to get from A to B. And that's the transformation bit. And again, that, that really plays into this notion of playbooks, which is simply how many ways to win. So how many ways have we got to get from A to B? And and how many times have we done it? So how, how, is it, how much of is it a repeatable model? Because it's sort of human nature that if you've done something 10 times before, the 11th time, you're going to be pretty good at it. If you've only done it once, or indeed if you've never done it before, then it's a bit of a different prospect, isn't it? So, where where these repeatable models are sort of most applicable, um, generally the outcomes are better from a risk-adjusted perspective. So, and again, with the, with a little Venn diagram of these two different things crosses, then that's your sweet spot. So, we pretty much know what we're doing and why we're doing it, and we've figured out the industry dynamics and the definition and the way it's constructed as a market, and our point of entry, like our attachment point. We figured all that out. Oh, and by the way, we figured out how to get from A to B, and ideally, we've done it before. So when the game starts, we're ready to go, right? We've been practicing for a while, and that—that—that's my big bias. But that—that that to me just feels like a, a you know, much m- much better way to do it. Uh, it's not the only way, but I think you see—you see a sort of growing prevalence of bits of that. Um, you know, not everybody's got the same approach. Everyone's got the same toolkit, but this idea around we'll be better be much more thoughtful about what we're doing uh, to begin with is certainly out there. And I think it's because of the, the pricing environment. It means that the the, the entry point or the, the height of the board that you're jumping off when you take your dive is twice as high. So you better know what you're doing or else you're gonna belly flop horribly mm-hmm. and that's gonna be painful. Yeah, so
0: when, when uh, managers are on the road and explaining their proposition, I guess the ones that you're explaining, it's, it's almost less of a blind pull, because you they they're not generally saying we're a bunch of guys that's gonna invest money in, you know, growing companies, they're saying, these are the companies we've invested in the past. And we are going to invest in companies. And you say thematic, but I take that to mean, broadly sectoral. But yeah, go on.
1: Yeah, I mean, even sector sectors, like a, a very blunt instrument. So you know, because you can say, like, we're going to do healthcare and IT. That's I don't know two hundred and fifty subsectors across the two, mm. so actually it, it it's more a case of you know we're going to look precisely here, and, and precisely here, and this is why, and we've done the work up front, and, and what you what you've seen is a sort of big investment from the firms in trying to understand what these areas look like, and to know you know who who's who's looking at what effectively, so that they have a much clearer sense. And and it just it again it's a kind of a de-risking and and also I think as well there's a funny for the funny outcome of that is that the deal planning or rather the sort of the number of things that they have a sense of what they're going to do and the amount of lead time they've got on it is actually pretty long in many cases I mean it's not that the firms don't do opportunistic deals they clearly do but you know there's there's a real sense of you know we're tracking these assets we've got a pretty good bead on mm. what's coming where and and we're trying to build angles around them all the time so. You know who do we know from our network what industrial advisors can we talk to what kind of you know consulting support can we get into it because we just want to know more because it becomes a sort of an arms race before the game starts almost which is how do we get into a position of sort of compelling knowledge or perspective before the game starts because actually when the game starts it's a it's a sort of a conviction speed exercise um and you need to have that kind of upfront front mm-hmm. to or, or else you end up in the other spot which is you end up taking a big exogenous risk so you, you know you, you end up running at something and all of a sudden you're you're in the head of the race and you're in the race with people who you know more than you do so all of a sudden it's like well how come i'm winning yeah you know, so there's a you know, funny dynamics around all that but that's my big bias so well um, i
0: i, I want to dig deeper into the Jim Strang bias because it's it's interesting i mean when when you were talking initially I was, you know, HG popped into my head as as I assume you're a fan of that kind of thematic play. You kind of know the kind of stuff that they're going to do into the future. Yeah. But um, what if there's a um, what if there's a private equity firm that has four or five different themes that they like to play into. How specialist yeah. do they have
1: to be to, to, to make cool. you interested? That's cool. I mean, I think having four or five thematic areas is actually what you see many of the big European funds do. So, you know, what what's interesting with our, our market, a bit different to the States, is, you know, the sort of economic perimeter of Europe and the US is kind of broadly the same, except that's big one homogenous market, and we are not. So, I mean, one of the challenges of, of the European markets has been, um, you know, it's a, slight, it's a slightly sort of two-speed between relatively small funds that operate in countries and for the most part certainly historically have been confined to the country of origin and groups that have either in many cases been born with pan-european networks that's allowed them to operate in multiple countries and they've been able to scale so they've been able to scale and you and you've seen that so you know you've seen relatively few firms scaling through Europe Um, that have not already had that ability to go cross-border right from the get-go which has created this slightly two-speed market and you know that our our pan-european champions that have all sort of sailed off into the sunset and got really big uh, have generally done so because they've been able to address the whole of the market through the footprint that they've had it's been really difficult to replicate that it's just beginning to happen because what's just beginning to happen is as this world of ours seems to turn into more and more of a game for experts, is my words, um, that local market imperative has just begun to roll over into domain knowledge. So it's actually become more important to know B2B services inside out than it is to have an office in Amsterdam. And what, what that's doing, or hopefully it may do, is you might see more graduating class popping up so you'll see you know country champions funds that get to the sort of the magic billion euros is kind of the number that seems to be the one that creates the problem they cross through it and they go but hang on we're able to cross through it because while it used to be the case that to do deals in germany we'd have to be german or you know success was defined like that now it's actually because we know b2b software really well we can go into germany and and still operate because the businesses are defined our success is defined by our knowledge of the vertical without
0: necessarily increasing your size range
1: yeah I mean that you can you can do things um you know you can do things across border um and in fact in many of them the way that they do it is they they, they, they focus or they have investment thesis in their in their um platforms which involves m; across border. so they get to know other markets through you know adding on to platforms that are established in their local market and through that knowledge they sort of figure out actually you know this isn't so scary as, it, as we thought it was confidence rises and they go in the sort of gradual steady sort of journey to and getting a bit more geographic exposure, which I'll then allows them to scale in the way that they wouldn't have done 10 years ago. But <clears throat> these journalist firms, and you know, back to a really long-winded answer as usual, but um, what you've seen in Europe is because of the sort of difficulty of crossing borders, things have been defined generally as a sort of a broad investment thesis rather than with sector funds, whereas in the States you've got, because it's one big homogeneous market, many more sector funds. So you can be a much more sort of sector allocator in the US than you can in Europe. Europe, you've got like maybe two handfuls of sector funds and the rest of the six or 700 are all still generalist. But within that generalist definition, they're becoming much more thematic. So it's the generalist used to be like, but a capital G, you know, everything from, Mm. you know, everything under the sun. It's much more constrained than that because they've, I think the funds have realized that, you know, that that just adds a layer of risk that probably doesn't get rewarded. So they've narrowed down the focus.
0: Mm. So 10 years from now, Do you expect a European private equity market that's, yeah, it's not going to be sectoral in the US sense, but it's going to be subtler? It's going to be more specialised, let's say.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it'll it'll turn into more and more of a sort of a a game for experts. Um, Primarily because, you know, back to the earlier comment, I think we're still going to have more and more capital that's coming in. and And there's going to be an increasing imperative to just have more insight around what you do. And to have more insight, I think, you know, un- unless you build massive organizations, you're going to have to focus what you've got in areas where you can build it, which sort of pushes you into this narrower, you know, narrower lens, but deeper, deeper look, which will go that way. And then I think fun- the interesting, one of the sobering things actually, if you look at the, the pan European market maps from 10, 15 years ago, you know, it one of the things that's definitely been a problem for the European industry is that lack of graduating talent. You know there's not many farm funds have made it so if you think you know we go back look in our portfolio and certainly the u.s and 15 years ago and look at funds from 15 years ago and look where they are today and they've kind of gone to the moon that really hasn't happened here and that it kind of should do it needs to happen here we need more funds to make it um than we've had historically and and hopefully being a bit more focused will allow them to you know cross borders get bigger get better and
0: and they've just been slow because of the structure
1: of the European market, presumably. A wee bit, yeah. And again, it comes back to this. It's just really difficult to get out of your local country market. Um, mm. And many have sort of not tried because, mm. you know, they've been too worried that the risks don't reward the uh, the goal. So they've stayed in it. But that means that, the you know, you've ended up with a sort of slightly funny market in Europe where you've got a whole bunch of country-focused managers and many very good ones, but they're operating at relatively small scale. And then the pan-European groups that were created and have scaled up, they've sort of disappeared off to the left. And there's a gap. So that the gap between a sort of a billion euro fund size and three is kind of a there now because the, the, the funds that used to fill it have all disappeared to the left. And the ones that are in the countries have generally struggled to cross that billion euro Rubicon because they don't have, or they haven't felt comfortable around multi-jurisdictional operation in the main. And that's left a bit of a gap. And, and obviously what happened to fill that gap is the funds that have left that space, many of them have gone back the way. They've like reintegrated backwards and said, to their investors, actually, you know, we can solve that solution for you, or rather solve that problem for you by delivering something that fits that gap from a sort of enterprise value range perspective. And you can do it through our franchise that you know and trust, which has been quite a popular solution. And then obviously the final piece of the puzzle is, you know, this is a $5 trillion industry that could go to 10 in a heartbeat. So you know, th- there's a sort of an imperative to find ways to deploy capital um, and to avoid massive complexity. So if you're a s- relatively small fund um, and there's this sort of, you know, this is the world that you're living in, you know, you, you kind of, to stay relevant, I think you, you kind of have to keep growing. So somehow they, ne- they kind of need to solve for this problem of how they're going to get through the, the, the sort of soft barrier that seems to be out there. Because to stay relevant for investors as investors needs to keep going up and up and up. It, it's going to probably push them in that direction anyway, so better to be ahead of it than get caught behind it.
0: Yeah, what's the threshold? Do you think that uh, a larger fund management group's
1: not going to go below, or is there no lower threshold? It depends. People do it in different ways. So, um, you know, some some have strict sort of strict rules that say, you know, if we can't invest a hundred million euro, dollar, whatever, it's just not worth it. Um, others have a sort of a uh, it's like the farm team using the american analogy which is we're going to we're going to build a little satellite of exposures in in much smaller managers because we feel like we need to have that as a sort of a future proofing exercise where you know one one or two of the 10 or 20 that we pick are going to become the next apollo and we want to be there now so we will we'll build the farm team and it and it's sort of relatively small tickets and it doesn't it's a strategic tool not an operational one because it doesn't solve their operational need to invest but it certainly helps from a strategy perspective if they can get sort of privileged access or a better position with with something which is going to turn into the next global titan so you have that so you have a sort of a different set of approaches around um, the way different investors operate
0: Well that sounds like a really good thing because if you don't have that you don't have any dynamism in the market
1: Yeah I mean I think you know that's that's true I think that's true and I think the The trade that the ones that don't do it make is they basically say, we'll be able to make it work. We don't need that, right? So we understand the premise, where no one's arguing with the premise, which is we need to have have ability to sort of refresh the book at some point. But the ones that say, actually, you know what, we're just gonna stick to the bigger checks until stuff is proven, um, then they're they're basically gambling on their ability to to win the, the war for access at the point where the war becomes relevant. And the ones that go down the farm team route are going, well, actually, we just de-risk it by being in an early. Yeah. Um, and there's different approaches. And where do you, where would you sit? We're open to anything, right? I mean, in yeah. you know, Hamilton Lane language, I think Europe's done the biggest and the smallest investments we've ever made. And the small one's less than 5 million euros. So, you know, we've, we've, we look at everything. And so one of the one of the foibles of the, of, the, of our world is because of the way our business is set up, we really do look at everything and, and know, well, not know everything, but we, we try and see everything, um, which is, just, we'll never do that, but we try to because we just have to be open to that 1% possibility. Yeah. Um, because someone's likely to ask, right, you know, if, what about X, Y, Z, and, and we need to have a point of view.
0: Yeah, so one of the implications of everything you've said so far is that private equity Firms as investors are going to need to be increasingly hands-on and involved in their investments, and so then the question is, ha, um, how do they do that? What are the what are the good ways, and what are the questionable ways of doing
1: that? Well, that that is a sort of a a mile wide in terms of a question because the the nature of what involvement and engagement looks like is just so radically different depending on scale. So. You know and I, I, even i had a touch a piece of this when i before i joined Hamilton. Lane, i worked in a uk lower mid-market fund and i did a bit of this <coughs> involvement and then when i way back in the day when i was at bain we we did loads of this stuff so sort of seen a bit of it quite a bit of it and i think you know what what you end up with broadly speaking is s- smaller companies um generally you know you're much more beholden on the management teams um there's fewer management those stop like physical bodies there's fear of them. They're much more important because of the sort of relative importance It's a numbers game. If you lose one from a team of three, you've lost a third. If you lose one from a team of 100, you've obviously not. So there's sort of a, you know, much more of an imperative around understanding the people and the capabilities. Um, and then in terms of like creating what full potential looks like, which is like the, the journey, framing the journey, um, you know, you're much more beholden on, on their ability to help deliver the journey. Um, and I think the journey is often a, you know, I would argue often a simpler journey. You know, there's there's things you can do, which you know, the, you get more leverage in a small company, frankly, than you do in a big one, um, just because the sort of experience curve is different for small versus large. So you, you can do simple things well, and you have a big impact, and you're relying on a management team to do that. So, and again, you know, that that's sort of the classic model where you would have, you know, non-exec involvement, non-exec chair involvement, someone who's a sort of a sounding board for the board and and the investor some kind of portfolio level resource and then you might you might play around in the margins with external support but you're not going to send in a whole bunch of people to try and do it it's like trying to crack a nut with a sledgehammer it's going to backfire not help you it's going to hurt you so at the lower end and certainly in in private equity venture is a whole different thing but in private equity at the lower end you know it's a sort of a that's your engagement model and then, as you start, and there's,
0: there's still a place for that, in your view.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of scale related. So, I mean, if you yeah. if you because I mean the 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 toolkit and the kind of things that I used to do when I was a Bain consultant, you know, we used to work for massive companies with huge complexity, and they needed a they needed an army to fix it because they frankly took an army. But if you're doing you know twenty million pound equity checks or thirty million mm-hmm. pound equity, check, it's a different thing altogether. Yeah. And you and if you tried to do one with the other, you'd end up with a nightmare. Mm. So you don't. But as as you scale up you know, different things start to happen. So you have, you know, you have more institutional framework to work within. You have more business complexity. You have multiple business units, multiple geographies, multiple layers of management, much more complexity, much more data normally and analytics that goes with it all. And that's where, you know, you can start to turn the dials up on some of this other stuff where, and again, you know, it's not rocket science because it's pretty well understood now that, you know, the toolkits out there, you can choose to use what you will of it, but most people have got most of it clearly understood, and they just choose to adapt it and integrate it in their own way. And and some are sort of very into it, quote unquote, and others are a bit less into it, but everybody's kind of got it. And then it's a question of how they, partic- as, as you said, as the fund scale up and the deal scale up, how you apply it, what your application model is, and how you sort of layer in the different pieces of the puzzle, which is, you know, what do you bring? What are management bringing? How are you gonna integrate this into one cohesive joined up plan? Mm and get it going. So I think the the key thing around it is if you're, you know, if you're sort of setting sail on a path, actually the the beginning of it is very key. So having the sort of first year piece done well, it seems to be a big driver of the final outcome. So having that whole sort of agreed up front is pretty important, but that seems to be how it works. So
0: So if you're a fund of a certain size, you would expect them to have functional expertise across Know, pricing and sales force and digital and customer journey and all of these areas, because they're dealing with companies that are so complex that that's always gonna be a...
1: Is yeah. Well, you, but again, with that, I mean, you can sort of, you can, you know, it's like yachts, you can either buy them or rent them, right? So right. You, you get the, the, um, the, the model of engagement is, again, very different. So s- some firms have an army, they have an in-house army of consulting support or operational support, massive bench, and they just pull from the bench. Um, others have a sort of a th- like um thin you know thin layer at the top and and are operating partner resource or something like that and their job is you're not there to answer the problems you're there to understand the questions right and then you find somebody else to answer the problems and th- and that is a sort of the you know, I call it the mission impossible approach. It's like the old mission impossible from, the, you know, they used to open the leather binder and the, it would come to different people, with, you know, to solve the case. Oh, yeah. And that's what they do. They say, right, you know, we've got a pricing expert and mm-hmm. his and his or her job is to nail pricing. And if we run across a um, a, a situation where pricing is a, is a lever we want to pull, and by the way, it's the lever that everybody pulls first or should do because it drives the most value, we just call them up. We get them in and they do pricing and then they scoot off. So, the um, you know, I think firms have a, will mainly have a sort of a toolkit approach, mm. which is, you know, what's my toolkit? And it literally, oh, wow. yeah. you know, it's got all the different elements of, um, that are matter. So there's all the sort of revenue fuel potential pieces and then all the cost optimization pieces. And then I think increasingly, you've got other things that are coming into the toolkit, which is all around, and probably the one that's out there now is all around talent, which is-
0: well, HR hiring. And yeah,
1: that- and, and sort of, you know, or, organizational design, yeah. um, Right people, right places, right sort of leadership capability, uh, and that—that's the one that's out there because actually mm. the the toolkit, the sort of revenue cost toolkit, um, is is the one that people got first because it, it's probably the most obvious, I'd say. It's closest um,
0: to the money, isn't it? And talent's a bit
1: further. And away. you can feel it, right? You pull yeah. pricing, you get eight percent EBITDA. You can feel what you do. X equals Y. The talent bit is a bit amorphous, mm. but really important. And and I think and the problem with that is it's quite difficult to solve it. So. I think you've seen, you know, certainly, um, you know, number of firms recently have gone for talent as a sort of an extra piece of the toolkit, and then the other bit they've gone for is this sort of disruption toolkit, which is the um, overlay. So it's quite quite often it's an overlay across, across mm-hmm. a number of different areas, but it's this this is like kryptonite. If we get this wrong, it right. completely messes up what we're trying to achieve. So. Um, let's let's make sure we've got this toolkit in here so that we can use it, so that we make sure that we don't accidentally step on something, which, you know, really goes wrong. Or indeed, if, you know, depending on your mindset, you can turn it around and go, we're going to be the disruptor. But we need to have the toolkit to know that we're actually doing it in a in an effective way. So yep. There's two different pieces. But you see quite a lot of that. So sort of, again, yep. why use one word when a million will do? But, <laughs> the, but the basic sense of it is there's a whole different set of operating models. So you've, your matrix on this is, scale and complexity sort of defines what you should be trying to achieve to some extent and then your own particular me- method of engagement is your operating model and you, everyone will be on that somewhere hmm. depending on the, yeah. their their size of the kind of things they're up to and what's appropriate and also their method of engagement for trying to get me to be yeah. um, but kind of everyone's on it now. and it's all cool with
0: you or is there a Jim Strang bias, you, you like a standing army or you like a black book or you like
1: it's, I, I... I Operating partners. Yeah, so. no, again, because it's all really driven by circumstance. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you said to, you know, there's some firms, if you said, you know, go, kind of go the other way, you've got too much, they just go, it's just what we do. You know, we, we, yeah. we yeah, so it's, it's much more firm culture, DNA. Is it appropriate, right? They, there's like this magic word of, is it an appropriate structure? Mm. Is it an appropriate right. model for what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it? Yeah. Um, Context specific. Yeah. And and it's often just really interesting to go through the process of just, you know, talking to them, about How did you think about that? How do you, how do you really think about all this stuff? And you get, you get quite very different answers actually, depending on who you ask.
0: So you've got this world where you've got um, increasingly large mm, thematic private equity firms that are becoming large organizations in their own right. To what extent are you looking at them as organizations rather than deal machines?
1: I'd say more and more, because um, if you think about what we you know, what we used to have, um, cottage industry, right? So, you know, a number of deal partners would 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 get themselves together, and off they would merrily go, and and they wake up twenty years later, and it's a three hundred person firm which is managing twenty billion euros, um, and you know that's a slight exaggeration, but it, you know that's in some cases that's been the reality. So this organizational piece around, uh, you know, culture, vision, value, structure, leadership, talent, all of that is, I think, super important. And again, it's quite hard to get your head around. And because we, we, we naturally default to the data, which nothing wrong with that, but mm. it isn't everything, it's just important. But you'd have to have the next piece as well, because, you know, the data tells you 100% about where everything's just come from. But the organization tells you about where it's gonna go. And so you need to have a point of view on that and what you like to see and you know the way you like to see things done um, because you' you know at least this is not a short-term business so y- you know you need to have a sense of where it's going to go, how it's going to get there and do I feel like it's going to make it or not? yeah ever more so and that I think that's an interesting challenge for the industry for the our side of the industry is getting better at that bit. Can you give us a few clues of the what you look out for that
0: rings alarm bells or what do you like to see?
1: Well there's no one operating model there's no one that makes sense for everybody so it's a little bit circumstantial Mm so uh you know and i mean i think i've um in the past i've used words like you know some firms that are benign dictatorship except they're not that benign but if everybody knows where they stand if it's crystal clear up front then that that can be a very effective model others are a complete partnership of equals which again is a different model, but if it's understood and that's how it's set up, then that's how it works. So you have a sort of sense of, I mean, my my little pyramid on this stuff is that um, leadership, talent, and then I call it structure and process. Um, And and the the difference on it is, or the bits of it are, private equity, the the best, the worst thing about private equity is talent, because it's got an amazing talent pool that it works with, but boy, it's tricky. Mm. Um, So there's a whole sort of, how you manage talent pieces really hard, um, the structure and process bit is sort of the internal rules of the road for how op- the firms operate. And mm. and that you know that can be, I mean, there's there's one fund that always always strikes me is because they've always been just sort of way ahead of the time on that, certainly for a fund of the scale, super transparent around you know, when you join, this is the route map, right? This is where you're going. Mm. These are the stages in the journey. This is what's going to matter as you go through the stages. This is the kind of thing you're going to have to do. This is what we're kind of looking for you to do. Oh, and by the way, this is how your world evolves. So this is how your economic deal evolves. This is your Mm. life cycle in the firm. Super transparent. They have a constitution. They have a sort of goal for what they're trying to do. They have a sort of why we do what we do. All of these things, which I think are really, I think, really important.
0: Sounds pretty unusual.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, and it it always struck me as, you know, and the reason that it's like that is, is the guy that founded the firm, had been through something similar in a different industry before and messed it up. Not or not messed it up, but it had gone, it had some He had some issues with it. Mm. And his learning in retrospect was the reason that I had, I had issues with it is I didn't have this. So when I do this, I'm going to have it. Mm. And actually it's been really successful, which then sort of squares us back to leadership, which is how, you know, what does leadership look like and, and how do you define, you know, great leadership? And if you've figured that out, please let me know. because I find mm. that really difficult to figure mm. out. Um, but that's the final piece of the triangle, and you want to hopefully see the three points of the triangle joining up somehow, and you feel like okay, I, un- I understand this. Right. And then you know you, you look through. You can once you've got the sort of perimeter established and the, the framework established, and you can start going into the points of detail. But the perimeter is pretty key because if you don't have that, then it doesn't really stand.
0: And generally speaking, my uh, my biased perception of Uh, organizations is that partnerships tend to be badly run even you know not just private equity some of my best friends are private equity but you know law firms tend to be internally and accounting firms and and it's because it's all about you know are you bringing in the money and nothing else matters and you've got obviously a lot of partnerships in private equity but increasingly you've got listed companies as well Mm. or more exposure to that and i guess you've got personal experience of that transition as well do you do you agree with me that partnerships can be a difficult beast to to kind of control in an institutional capacity?
1: I don't think it's easy. Um, you know, I think if you're if you're in that structure, then again, it, it, if you've got clarity or you've had clarity on how you're going to run the rules, it's a hell of a lot easier. I think if you know if you if you've sort of got an unconstrained evolves ecosystem mm. without r- ever really having the difficult um the difficult conversations it's i think it's hard so the, one of one of my friends um <clears throat> was was involved heavily involved in one of these partnership situations and and uh, her solution which bless she had a go at was um she did a thing called radical candor which i don't know if you've come across radical candor oh is this like a bridgewater type yeah thing? Right. Oh, right so yeah. they did radical candor to fix it right because that that was you know that was the only way she could see to get around it but hugely beneficial but hugely painful yeah because they'd never really done it they so they took quite a big leap in one jump and it was a really good leap but you know it wasn't easy and you know blessed she got she did it she made it work but that was a good example of you know kind of partnership growing just the dynamics and the complexity of it had just grown and grown and grown and and no one had ever really wanted to look at it because you know the firm was doing really well, but it's like bubbling away under the issue under the surface. And eventually, they thought, "Oh, this is actually going to be a problem. We better deal with it." And it was mm. quite hard for them to deal with it. So, I think the learning from that was you know in paying attention to it, because then you don't have to go and do that ten years down the line. Wow, yeah, that's bitter medicine, particularly for British people.
0: Radical candor. Here yeah, we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's pivot slightly and think about the LLPs, um, because that's that's the other side of your, your business coming in yep. um, how are how are they set up would you say uh, vis-a-vis today's market with regards to things like their strategic and tactical approach to portfolio planning
1: yeah um, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a spectrum uh, I'd say like step zero is for, for most of the people that we work with this plugs in so it plugs into everything else so what you know what they want to understand is well step stepping back for most if they're going into this it's a risk it's an organizational and a personal risk so they want to know is do you know what you're doing and secondly what kind of comfort have, have you can you give me that this is going to be a successful journey uh, and part of that is help me understand how this is going to marry up to the rest um, because I've got a whole, you know, for most 90% of their assets plus plus with public bonds and equities. You know, they've got a whole set of perspectives on what they think's happening to that. Um, and they want to know if I do my build my private equity portfolio underneath, then I, you know, what am I shooting for? So, mm. you know, what is my NAV goal? What are my net asset value goals for this going to be? Um, how do I feel about volatility? How do I feel about the sort of commitment profile, cash in, cash out? We do a lot of that. It's probably, you know, right at the top of the list of things we do. do because it helps instill confidence that actually you know this is what we think is going to happen oh and by the way we can mess with the numbers so you know we we've, we're a data firm we've got a lot of information and one of the things that we can do with that is go let's ask let's ask the model different things around scenarios so you know what happens if we go a deviation up or a deviation down or two deviations down we get like a 95 percentile then what happens to all this num all these numbers and we can go, well actually you know here's a here's real numbers as to what actually happens. So we can say, well, you know, it's unlikely, unless we get into the sort of, absolutely the edge of the tail, unlikely to get worse than that. Hmm. So if, you, you know, this is the worst it can get, or reason, with reasonable expectations, this is the worst it can get. So, you know, that that becomes a pretty um, important piece of it. So the, the whole idea about, you know, helping them upfront with understanding goals, understanding how this is all gonna integrate, giving comfort around the sort of mechanics of it all, um, uh, Matt is, Matt is all everywhere, but everyone's got a slightly different take on it. But it, it's something that's a sort of a bulk standard approach, basically.
0: And w- what about the um, the kind of the risk of commitments if we're going into hard times? I'm thinking like 2008, yeah. Type, yeah, how are people managing
1: that? Front of mind for everybody, I'd say, or many, many, and and it's just the f- like the fear of what might happen. So, you know, what for example, when you look at the hard data, what you, what you realise is that Uh, because people were obviously last go around were worried in a a down cycle that they'd kind of run out of money right the 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 cash draws would be really significant and the liquidity would dry up and you'd end up in a bad place what actually happened was the whole system stopped effectively stopped so the actual cash the net cash positions while they deteriorated they didn't deteriorate much because the system shut down Mm. Uh, so you can basically point to that and go look you know Mm. this is a more realistic outcome because the GPs are not calling. They're not calling because right. everybody's risk-off. Yeah. Um, they're, they're all, you know, they're busy figuring out what way is up. So mm. there's that, and the confidence goes. So this is the other, like the confidence bubble gets burst, burst and people just go risk-off and they stop doing stuff. Mm. Um. So actually the net cash position didn't deteriorate. So that is quite insightful. And you can go, well, actually, if you go back long enough, you can see that over a number of cycles. So, you know, there's a reasonable sense that, you know, if histories are, you know, was Mark Twain say, history isn't repeat, but it rhymes. But uh, like here's, a, here's a good sense of what's likely to happen going forward. Okay, that gives me some comfort. It, it just, it helps. Yeah. So, you know, you, that's a thing. That's definitely a thing people look at. And then also the, the other thing obviously is out there is, <clears throat> this is the one that we don't know what's going to happen next time, but denominator effect, because this always plugs into something mm. else. So if your public market portfolio halves, then all things equal, your private allocations doubled mm. up. So what what do you do there? And of course, last time around that led to a whole bunch of secondary selling because people felt really over allocated. and then that turned out to be, you know, unfortunate timing because the, mm. you know, the, the prices that these secondary deals were done at turned out to be very very good mm. on the buy side uh, in a matter of you know a year or two. So, you know, the interesting question this time round is going to be, you know, what what kind of what kind of reset if we get one public market reset, what kind of reset do we get? What's the quantum of it, and how will it affect people's decisions around allocations? Because I think they will be less concerned, or they should be less concerned, about the sort of cash flow impact of what's likely to happen. But they could get they could get in a, in a spot around va- asset value exposure,
0: yeah.
1: And how you know how reactive are they going to be, or, or or will will they take more of a sort of, mm, let's tough this out approach, in which case they won't sell to the same extent. Um, yeah.
0: And that depends just on the nature of the institution and its bureaucracy and so on. I guess. Yeah,
1: rules, probably risk management rules as well, which um, right. will come into that. Um, so we, that's the bit we don't really know, but we'll okay. see. Okay.
0: And in this world, are there, there's a lot of talk of AI at the moment. Yep. Um, to what extent does that or automation generally feed into the growing sophistication of portfolio?
1: management uh well i think i think what's definitely happening is the sort of the gr- the amount of data that's out there is actually going logarithmic so you know the amount of information that's out there to be able to be analyzed is you know large and growing really rapidly so even just about f- private equity fund data that's growing yeah even with that because because basically what what's happening is where you know the, the the level of data transparency is is rising you know rapidly mm. um, the quality of the data is rising, so you've you know, all sorts of you know very august groups like ILPA helping mm. determine what's going to get reported and the timing of it and the relevance of it, etc. So then, and then it's drilling down, so it's going into the portfolio company level. So you know you, you're starting to get like real data, lots and lots of it. <clears throat> so I think that you know the what we decided a while back now is to go. This this is actually really potentially dangerous because unless we can use mm. this all, it's, we're going to get drowned in it. Mm. So let let's get set up for it. So um, that's that's kind of how we did it. And I think you know many, many have followed suit because the you know, the data is fantastic. Um, and analysis is great, but actually what I really care about is insight. Hmm. It, you know the, the analysis, unless it helps you make better decisions, it's not really helping you. It's just burning time on Excel. So you know having, having the sort of the wherewithal to go, let's organize this all in a proper joined up way, and let's make it something which is going to scale up as we scale up because as we scale up, it's going to get even more complicated. Uh, And then let's be able to pull insights from it. Because the the key thing, you know, certainly the way we think about it, remember, we use data to help us make better decisions. We don't use data to make decisions. But the key thing around using data to help us make better ones is we've got to get leverage from it so that we can crush our world down to stuff which is actionable and, you know, humans can deal with, basically. And that's a a big thing. And Mm -hmm. that's only going to get harder. So that's, you know, front of mind, I think, for... uh, Mm. for everybody I think so that process be. was one of
0: kind of distillation then it must have been got all of this data coming in yeah you only want a simple output
1: because you can only act on relatively simple yeah. insights. so it's having a sort of a framework really that mm. allows you to sort of push data through a framework to tell you things that you really care about mm. and, and then try and use them to help you guide. right decisions. Yeah. And that and that's kind of our version of it. I won't push you to give away any trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Hal from it's like Hal. <laughs> Um
0: You also sit on the global investment committees at Hamilton Lane that I mentioned at the start. So I wonder if you could give us uh, your view on the relative value proposition of private equity markets worldwide.
1: Uh, Another a yep. very
0: broad question, I'm afraid.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know the, the the thing I always start with is like the great thing about private equities is it's the only asset class in the world where the insiders make the liquidity decisions, which is awesome. Uh, and so it's really resilient, right? So the, the first thing around private equity is, is you know it's that uh, um, you know Gary Player's got this great saying about golf, which is it's not how good you are when you're good, it's how good you are when you're bad. Um, and actually, private equity's got a lot of that. It's so resilient everywhere. So you sort of start from this premise of actually it's a, it's a good thing, mm. uh, investment-wise it's a good thing. And then you make, your, you've got a world to, to slice up and boy, it's a big wide world now. So you know, you've got all of the private equity piece, you've got all of the venture piece and growth equity piece, you've got a world of credit which is top to bottom, you've got mm. real assets, you've got um, infra uh, inside of that and real estate inside of that. You've got such a complicated picture. So, <clears throat> so what? If you did a sort of MSCI for private equity, like a cap weighted index, you'd probably have something like I think um, 65, 25, 10, Americas, EMEA, and APAC and everything else, something like that. Um, Sort of driven by um, relative scale of the industry, I'd say. So there's there's probably, I don't know, 4,000 funds in America I'm gonna put these numbers on, but the sort of directionally right like four thousand in America, several hundred in Europe, and then um, there's probably more funds in Europe than there are in Europe in the rest of the world. But the funds are all smaller; it's a volume value thing. Hmm. Um, and the way we've tendly tend to look at it is, you know, the the, the performance of the of the sort of private equity markets in Europe and America has been actually very very similar. Um, you know, they, if we look at the long term data that we've got and the, the actual outcomes, they look really samey. So w- with that, you, know, you would be unsurprised to learn that our portfolios tend to look a bit like that. So they tend to have a sort of a decent chunk of exposure to the US. It's probably like, you know, marginally over the MSCI. Mm. And, you know, Europe is sort of a decent chunk of the rest. Mm. And then we're, we're much more picky in the non-developed market bit of private markets. And it's not that we don't do it. It's just that, you know, we our we, we sort of investment committee mantra, is very simple, which is like, nothing but the best is good enough. So if you take something to investment committee, it's going to get trolled over, it's going to get pulled apart, and you have to be able to say, you know, this is why it's an imperative. If it's like a nice-to-have, then there's lots of nice-to-haves, but we really care about it. this is an imperative, something that's got something around it which makes it something we've got to have. Wait, so you don't feel like you have to have a little bit of Asia-pack? Well, I mean, not really. I mean, it, it, it's... And we move these things around depending on what we feel, but, you know, it's... We, we, and again, the other thing with, with uh, go back to the earlier point of business definition: we've got plenty of Asia, right? Because we've got plenty of businesses that are defined globally, so they've got plenty of exposure to Asia. So my bet is less about do I want to have exposure to healthcare in China, and more about who do I want to have it through, right? Right. So you know, I can go and talk to a, a global fund,
0: hmm.
1: and they can have that. But if I, I mean, if I allocate a billion dollars to someone in Beijing, they're going to spend it all so that's a real choice and then that layers into the you know how do i feel about this or who am i backing the organization all the capability stuff that we layered in earlier mm. so actually if we look at our exposure we look all the way through it yeah. to what we're actually getting and then we make very sort of careful choices about the way we do we pick managers and then we also be we have a sort of a let's try and make as few bets as possible with managers so we tend to have smaller portfolios of managers with deeper relationships mm. um and that, that fit the framework and that's, so that's kind of what you see. So we talk about, in the investment committees, we talk about the big strategy stuff a couple times a year. And, you know, this is where we've got our chips on the table. How do we feel? Um, and we do a big refresh on that, actually, this time of year. So <clears throat> we're doing it now. So what's the, what's the feeling around where the relative chips are placed? What are we going to do differently and why? Um, and then that sort of sets a high-level framework. And then the, the investment teams, because our investment teams all sit locally. So there's an EMEA team, an APAC team, an Americas team. And their jobs are like, be the be the black hole of your region, right? So capture everything, like force of gravity, mm. gather in as much as you possibly can and then push it through that process using as much external help as you can get to help you leverage your time to make better decisions and then use the global group to help refine the choices and use that to help determine what ultimately ends up on the, like the book, basically. And that, that's kind of the, the right. system.
0: We spent most of the conversation
1: talking about Buyouts, really, private equity. Yeah.
0: What do you have a general view on venture?
1: I think it's great. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the most. It's the some of the most interesting and, and fascinating stuff and meetings that I go through are all around venture. Um, you know, uh, I just find it all very uh, very interesting stuff. I think the, <clears throat> the 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 framework for it. I struggle with because it's not my bias, right? So my my bias is the sort of Market, market structure, market growth, market position, competitive franchise, relative competitive position, all of that. Mm. Uh, and that's comb turf for me. And I feel very comfortable with all of that. And obviously in venture, you get none of that, or mostly none of that. So it's a different framework that you have to look through. Um, and that is the way it is. So you know, we, we've, we, we completely look at it, we completely do it, but we're, we, we just do it in a we have to look in a different way. Um, and we have to take different kind of relative value decisions mm-hmm. as a result, um, but it is fascinating stuff. So we've, you know, we've got, you know, our, our exposure to ventures in Europe. We have sort of, I'd say, several different groups that we really like, mm-hmm. and again, it's like it, nothing but the best is good enough. Is it imperative? Yeah. And then in the portfolio. And and this is something that I think GPs, you know, more holistically, GPs sometimes struggle a bit with. And this is one of the things I always ask them when they're in an LP meeting is to say to the the LP, where does this fit in your portfolio? Right? Because the LP's got some sort of framework for how their portfolio is being constructed. And if there isn't an unmet need for whatever it is you're selling, Mm. then it's going to be quite difficult for them to make it work, even if they love it. Mm. it's going to be quite difficult. So the more that you understand about how you, they build their portfolios, the easier yeah. it's going to be. And, and you know, venture is just one piece on that, which is mm. what's your venture program look like? Oh, and by the way, how do you define it? Because you know, mm. some people define venture locally, like European venture, others define it globally. Mm. Because actually the, the way that the businesses are defined, it kind of lends itself more to global definition than it does local, because no one's doing venture capital in bricks. Yeah. Right, <clears throat> so there's a bit of that. So yeah, I I think it's fascinating stuff. I have to say, and and even you know we, we've we've got some we've got some quite interesting investments around healthcare VC, and it's mind blowing stuff. I mean it, it's absolutely earth shattering. It, it's quite difficult to figure out what it's all worth. I have to say, but I mean mm. it, it, as a as a premise, it's got it's fascinating.
0: Is it still the uh, home run
1: model? Is it still the home run model? Uh, it, yeah it probably is yeah. I would say it probably is I mean I think the interesting dynamics around it are you know as as it's morphed particularly if anything around consumer internet which yeah. is, consumer internet is like negative working capital so you know it, it basically throws off cash as it grows so it, it, it's requirement for more capital to fund growth is actually limited because of the model mm-hmm. so it, that and that creates questions around you know how do you how do you you deploy capital? Because this is like one of the problems of venture. If you think you go back to Mm. where a $5 trillion industry heading to 10, venture investments are generally all very small. So, you know, how how do you get of how do you translate one into the other, you know, problem? Um, And some of these venture models are kind of exacerbating it because they don't use much capital up, so they don't really need scale. Uh, As in scale deployment of capital, which means they can't use fund capital, which means Mm. funds don't be aren't big, which means investors struggle to get meaningful allocations to them. Um, <clears throat> that's a that's a bit of a wrinkle, but as I said, it's all fascinating stuff. Just spend it all on Facebook marketing, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well it, I mean it, that, that can, you know, that is that is one of it. One of the bits yeah. of it is it becomes a sort of a war. You know, the, 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 the bigger the perimeter you can build, the sooner you can build it, the more value you create. But yeah. you know, it's value in a funny old way. Um, and, and the other the other thing around clearly is the, the the metrics for valuation are sort of defined by the next buyer or the last buyer rather. Yeah, last buyer defines value uh, r- rather than a sort of fundamental value, mm-hmm. which is, and, that, and that's why it's a little bit more sort of um, you know, market-driven, I would say. And and therefore, you, what you see with venture performance more typically is it's cyclical, yeah. right? And where, if where everybody's following in that direction, their valuations keep expanding, and then things look great, and then it goes the other way, and then it comes back, and then it goes the other way. Yeah. So it's a bit of a sort of a, you know, you got to bear that in mind, I think.
0: I forgot to ask you about um fund terms it's yep. a little bit of the nitty-gritty yep but if i'm a gp coming to you what do you like to see and what turns you off uh, anything in
1: particular well i think it's it's, it's interesting in as me I, I think about the way that this operates it's like a piggy bank right so the gp's got a piggy bank and it can spend its money from the piggy bank on different stuff and depending on their franchise, it kind of sets the size of the piggy bank. So if you've got a, you know, one of the blue chip, scale franchises, you've got quite a big piggy bank. Mm. Um, and then it becomes a question of how what do they go after. Um, and you, you know, simplistically, you've got sort of key economic levers and then key structural levers. And the the key econ- economic levers are the obvious ones. So it's like fees. So fee rate, fee basis, step down rate. Um, Carried interest, level off, structure thereof uh, and then hurdle, somewhere in the middle for most people, nature of hurdle, mechanism of hurdle. And that's your sort of economic package. Um, And then you have the sort of the organisational structural piece around investment mandate, investment restrictions, key man provision, what happens when it all goes wrong provision, what happens when we get to the end of the funds, which is, I think you're going to see more and more of that, but the number of GP led restructuring Mm -hmm. is only going to go up to the right. You're going to get more comment around how that's all going to work. Um, And all this gets pushed up in a package. And then, you know, the GPs have a think about, okay, I've got money in my piggy bank, I've got my sort of economic or rather my perimeter of different things I can go after. What's going to matter to me this time, round? What, what one do I want to go for? And and you see different people going for different stuff. I'd say you know th- what is interesting. I mean, if it was me, I think the thing that I would focus on probably more than anything is the hurdle, because if we have a if we have an economic blip, then I mean what what you see particularly with with big companies which go into big funds, which is where most of the value in the industry sits, they are really resilient. So you know, big companies generally tend to survive, right? right. They don't because effectively to to really fail. <clears throat> you know, you've got to run out of cash that doesn't happen very often to big businesses it mm. does to small ones but not to big ones so then you you start kind of arguing the toss over how do you um, you know how do you how do you sort of, what is what is monetization like for that and and what you saw certainly in the last cycle was big businesses generally came out eventually came out okay um, for one or two notable ones but for the most part incredible resilience they kept on chugging and in many cases the deals actually hit their underwriting from a multiple perspective but it took twice as long mm. so the maths comes out in the IRR calculation <clears throat> so the, the the thing that right. you know if there's going to be a problem it's going to come out in the hurdle so the funds you know might do you know there's plenty of funds from the crisis that did 1. 1.6 1. 1.7 which looks great mm. the 1.6 to 1.7 if you just solve for that on an 11 year Mm. hold you're actually at eight or maybe below it so if i was a gp i'd be going after that that's mm. then that's what i would expect them to go after because messing with management fees isn't really it's neither here nor there i don't think uh, and certainly messing with performance fees and unless you have an absolutely compelling value proposition and and you're so confident that you feel like what i've got is just differentially more valuable mm. You're, I don't think they're likely to go for that and we haven't really seen that we haven't really put where funds in Europe certainly have sort of leaned on that lever they've generally been you know truly different mm. they've been doing things in a very different mm. way they are t- you know generally small funds mm. um, they've gone that way but you know I, I, I expect more funding games around the hurdle races are point. you
0: seeing it already?
1: well we've seen some already um, we'll see what happens next year there's a lot a lot of capital will get raised next year all things equal so we'll see what that lot does um, yeah but I, I would have thought I mean I, I would go there and then the choice the choice will be you know some some will choose to go there and some won't So some will say, okay, we're rather not gonna spend what's on the piggy bank or we're gonna spend on mm. something else like mm. um, you know, tying funds together so we're, we're gonna we're gonna try and raise two or three different vehicles in parallel. so we'd rather you know rather than rather than sort of do one thing and mess with a hurdle race, we're gonna try and do three things or five things in parallel and do credit as well as infrastructure or whatever it is. To raise assets and they'll try and spend it that way
0: Brilliant Jim thanks a lot for coming in Great Pleasure you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast make sure you subscribe and visit our website fund-shack.com for many more video interviews it's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals thanks for listening